This is the 96 AD Podcast, Episode 2, Background 1, Roman Kingdom and Republic. Let me start this episode with a preface on what we will accomplish in the next few episodes. I'll be summarizing the history of Rome from 753 BC to 68 AD in only three episodes, about 90 minutes. So, I will likely skip over many important things. What I aim to accomplish with this summary is to set up the requisite knowledge about Rome to appreciate the history of 68 through 117 AD. In this episode, I'll cover up to 189 BC. I'll be covering only what I deem to be important enough to understanding Flavian Rome. Now, let's get the show on the road. Most of the early history of Rome is mythological and fantastical. Up until, at the very least, the establishment of the Republic, just about nothing I'm about to tell you is true. Livy stated that the stories of the Roman Kingdom are more fitted to adorn the creations of the poet than the authentic records of the historian. However, they are still valuable to learn. I'm going to tell you these stories because this is how the Romans told their own history, and so we appreciate Roman history through that lens. According to tradition, Romulus founded the city of Rome in the 8th century BC specifically on April 21st, 753 BC. But the history of Rome doesn't necessarily start with Romulus. Back in the sack of Troy, which likely was in the 12th century BC, that was included in the famous battle of Homer's Iliad, a Trojan named Aeneas escaped with a few followers. He was tasked with resettling the Trojans in Italy. On his way, he set a rivalry with the North African trading empire of Carthage in motion by allowing their queen to fall in love with him and then commit suicide when he left her. Romulus was a descendant of Aeneas, many generations down. Romulus and his brother Remus were born to a sort of virgin birth. A similar story to Jesus, Romulus was said to be the son of Mars, the god of war. It was common for Romans to derive their family lineage from famous figures and gods. Julius Caesar himself claimed to be a descendant of the goddess Venus, through Aeneas. The Romans attributed many of their customs, beliefs, and traditions to the seven mythical kings, Romulus created the first set of laws, the Senate and the Legions. Numa, the second king, was quite opposite to the warlike Romulus, and is described as pious and thoughtful. Numa made changes to the Roman religion, advocated for peace, and also created the Roman calendar. It's clear to see that anything the Romans found going on around them, they would attribute to one of the seven kings, based on sort of importance and how it stood. If it was based on war, it might be attributed to Romulus. If it was based on peace, maybe to Numa, something else, maybe to one of the other kings. And this was sort of their created history to explain their current world and explain the customs, odd as they are, that they have. I will reiterate and say that this is all mythological, and while it's true that there must have been some sort of king in Rome, it's nearly impossible for there to have been only seven kings ruling for roughly three decades each, since the seven kings reigned from 753 BC to 509 BC. What happened to 509 BC? Well, I'll tell you. The Roman monarchy was overthrown. The son of the last king committed a rape. The father of the poor girl and some other disenfranchised Romans decided to take it upon themselves to take the king out of power. And they did. The king, Tarquinius Superbus, which is the proud, has been running a tyrannical regime for decades. The rape of Lucretia was the straw that broke the camel's back. Rome then established a system of electing two heads of state, called consuls. The consuls would only reign for a single year. The Romans would refuse to allow a single man to wield unchecked power again, 
They used term limits and the fact that there was a co-ruler to keep ambitious man in check. There was always someone else around to veto you. And if the other guy was in leagues with you, you both can be gone in a year. Brutus and the Romans decided that the people shall rule, and elected officials would run the state. It is suggested, however, that instead of a violent coup, simply the aristocracy took powers from the king gradually with time. I've always gotten the impression that the Roman Republic was the institution that resulted in Roman domination, but this isn't entirely the case. By the start of the Republic, Rome was already one of the premier powers in Italy. It had overtaken many of the cities around it and had influence all throughout the peninsula, and had already become a naval power. This brings us into the Republic. The Republic is interesting, and somewhat topical, since it is defined by class conflicts and the institution of the oligarchical Republic dominates this period. With the kings out of the picture, the prominent aristocratic families of the Romans took center stage. There were elections, yes, but the electoral system was designed for the aristocrats. To start, only descendants of the aristocratic families, called patricians, were allowed to run for and hold high offices. These patricians justified this by arguing that the religious rituals and such involved in high offices could be only administered by patricians, and so not to upset the gods, only patricians could rule. The Romans were overly superstitious, so this wasn't unrealistic to suggest. More importantly, the electoral system was not first past the post. Citizens had been divided into classes since the monarchy, divided by wealth and land ownership. And simply put, the rich landowners had more votes than everyone else, while only making up a small fraction of the population. The richest class, the senatorial class, was just as you'd expect. It was the senators. This means that the richest men of the Republic were the ones leading it, and the people leading the Republic were the richest men. What we will see for the remainder of the Republic is that the aristocrats are conservative, and will continually fight for their privileges, and will continually lose. It's in this respect that you could argue that very little would have changed from monarchy to Republic, since the average citizen wouldn't have gained much from the oligarchy that was now in control. Rome had their popular Republic, but right off the start they did not have it easy. Most of the cities in the area surrounding Rome revolted, aiming to get their own independence. Friends of the monarchy, such as the Sabines, also started attacking the young republic. Rome was surrounded. Over the next 150 years, the Romans would win many victories, but they would lose many more. The Romans would never break out of their surrounded and under attack state. They'd simply envelop those around them, and then the people right outside that border would invade them. This would all come to a head in around 387 BC. This is when the Gauls invaded the city of Rome itself. By this time, the Romans had reconquered all the lands that had revolted, and much more. The Gaulish hordes were able to take advantage of Rome and its surroundings, battered by war, blazing straight through them to sack the Eternal City. This event was so sudden and horrific that the city was almost abandoned for good. From here, we have more reliable and less fantastical sources, since the early sources were likely destroyed in that very sacking. Let's backtrack a bit. Rome's history of class struggles was already well underway. Initially, Rome had no written law code. The law was administered based on the precedence and the sway of patrician judges. This meant that the patricians could run rampant with their power, and there was no judicial recourse for disgruntled citizens. By the start of the Republic, many plebeian, non-patrician, citizens had become as rich or richer than the senatorial patricians. They started to have considerable backroom political influence, but no say in the senator courts. This was the start of the plebeian agitation. As a result of Rome holding on for dear life in the 6th and 5th century BC, the plebeians that actually made up the legions were able to come back to the city and effectively go on strike until rights were afforded to them. In 494 BC, 
the returning army simply announced that they were going to leave and found a new city. The unsuccessful wars leading up to 494 led to disapproval into patrician leadership, and so concessions needed to be made to make up for this popularity. The patricians were on the brink of a popular revolt. And so, the result was a compromise. The compromise was the creation of a new magistrate, called the Tribune. The Tribune would be elected, of course, and could only be a plebeian. The Tribune could intervene in the decisions of patricians in the courts and the like, allowing falsely accused plebeians to not get prosecuted. This was a powerful position, and later in the Republic, it would gain even more power, the power to veto any legislation, the single most important ability that only elsewhere lay with the consuls. Finally, a written law code was created to allow for more just administering of the law. Over the next few centuries, more and more power would be given to the tribunate and other popular means of reaching politics. Poorly conceived laws in the law code that forbade plebeian patrician marriage would be repealed, and eventually plebeians could even run for consul. By the time of Julius Caesar, the distinction of the two factions was almost nothing. In fact, a patrician man who found himself ostracized from high office due to a scandal would make himself a plebeian just so he could run for tribune. In the 4th century BC, a people called the Samnites started expanding in the south of Italy. Delicate balance of power between the Romans, Greeks, and others was broken as the Samnites washed through, displacing people into adjacent lands as they went. Rome was called in to intervene in 343. The ancient accounts of the battles appear to be fantastical and embellished, but we can gather that by 340, the Romans had decisively beaten the Samnites, and a peace was established. The result was Rome becoming more independent and spreading its influence further amongst the Latins that surrounded them. The Latin cities would eventually revolt against Rome, but victories in the 320s allowed Rome to take near direct control of the Latin cities, setting harsh peace terms upon them. These peace terms would force them to separate themselves from each other and be subservient to Rome. In this time, the Romans would have more victories over the Samnites, and developed Naples into the Roman fold. Rome would largely give good terms to pliable cities that they found. Cities willing to join Rome wouldn't be destroyed, sacked, or razed. These cities were allowed to enter the Roman economy and had Roman protection. This was a great precedent and caused many cities to defect to Rome's banner in the subsequent wars with the Samnites. By the 280s, Rome had taken control of nearly all of Italy. They had dominion far into the north, the Greeks in the south still held out. Keep in mind that during the wars against the Samnites, in the east, Alexander the Great had made his conquest into Asia and died in 323. What's important about this for us, aside from fitting Rome into a larger context, is that in 280, a relative of Alexander was called to Italy to defend the Greek cities. The heel of Italy is quite close to Greece, so it shouldn't be surprising that the island-hopping Greeks of the 8th to 4th century founded a lot of cities there. The whole region had become predominantly Greek, and so an aspiring Greek or Macedonian general hoping to mimic the success of Alexander came from Macedon to fight the Romans and defend his Greek brethren. The Greeks of the Italian heel are described as soft. They lived in luxury and prosperity and knew little of war and conflict since not much had come to them. However, they could see that Rome had just conquered about everyone around them, so surely they were next. The Samnites were strong, tough, and challenged the Roman for decades. The Greeks would have been justifiably terrified. The super-rich Greeks had many times enlisted foreign help and still had money in the bank for one last attempt to save themselves. Pyrrhus was hired and crossed the Adriatic with some 20,000 men, a couple thousand cavalry, and a few elephants. These were primarily mercenaries, but were able to stand up to the legions. Pyrrhus fought two battles. Each time he matched the Romans, man for man. In each battle he caused the Romans to flee, and certainly have more casualties than his own army. However, 
Epirus was in enemy territory. The allies he had in Italy could provide some conscripts, but the Romans could replenish their entire army in a year. So when Pyrrhus suffered a reported 4,000 casualties versus the Roman 7,000, the Romans didn't break a sweat, while Pyrrhus had to seriously consider if he could continue. The second victory of the style proved that he could not maintain himself in the heart of Italy, and after spending less than a year in Italy, Pyrrhus fled back to Greece. Pyrrhus would return and cause havoc in Sicily in 278, but largely he was done, and the Greek cities were subjugated to Roman occupation and became allies to Rome. Now Rome was in the big leagues. Italy was theirs, and influence was starting to be spread to Sicily. They were now known as the premier power in the Mediterranean. The Romans would finally meet their rival, Carthage. Since 510 BC, Carthage had made two treaties with Rome, showing mutual support for each other and pledging to keep their distance from one another. Carthage was North African and had influence in the islands of the Mediterranean and Spain. It should be obvious now where the war started. Both empires had influence in Sicily. Sicily was directly south of Italy, and was north of Carthage, right in the middle. It was closer to Italy, but it was an island, and so naturally the maritime Carthaginians had an easier time controlling it. But this would make them roughly equal in a battle for the island. The world of the Mediterranean at this time could be seen as having two distinct parts, the Greek East and the not-Greek West. The Greek East could contain Greece, Seleucid Persia, and Egypt, still finding their footing after Alexander ran through them. The West would be defined by Carthage, Rome, and the intermediate kingdoms. It was only a matter of time before one of them sought to control the whole of the West, and it would be only a matter of time before they looked east. The stalemate in the West would be broken in Messina, Sicily. In 270, a group of mercenaries, once part of the Carthaginian army, took control of the city. By 265, a Syracusan general then took the city back. The mercenaries contacted Rome for help, while the Syracusans sought out the Carthaginians. Rome sent two legions to the island, hoping to quickly take control of the region. The fighting would be difficult, but the Romans knew that while Carthage could best them on the sea, they had the premier legions that could win a pitch battle on the island. Carthage could only best them at sea. Carthage may have been the clear favorite going into the war, but recently their claim to the region had dissipated, and many were willing to accept Rome. The Carthaginians jumped at the opportunity to demonstrate their seaborne prowess and sailed for the islands. The dangerous crossing was made by the Romans, and two battles were fought on the island in 262 BC. The result emboldened the Romans, and made them determined to take control of all of Sicily. Turns out, the Carthaginians were slow to get to the island. The fighting, however, would continue for some time. This would not be a Blitzkrieg victory. In 256 BC, the Romans lost a major engagement when they tried to land troops on North Africa. The Romans lacked skilled men for their ships, and naval defeats would further decrease the amount of well-trained men they had. A certain Carthaginian general named Hamilcar had massive success against the Romans in 250s, even raiding Italian coast at the height of his success. The Romans very well could have lost this war. The fleet that had won the last battle was literally the last ships they had. Had they lost, there could have been no coming back. In 242 BC, the decisive victory at sea over Hamilcar allowed the Romans to gain favorable peace terms. The Romans were paid handsomely and gained control over Sicily. Not long after, the nearby Sardinia and Corsica were conquered by the Romans. The Romans had won, but the Carthaginians were not done yet. Hamilcar and his son would not forgive the Romans. His son would grow to become the largest enemy of Rome to ever combat the Republic, the single largest figure who nearly killed the Roman dream in the Italian backyard. Hannibal Barca would march into Italy and win three decisive engagements. Hamilcar and his son were in Spain in 238 BC, extending the influence of Carthage presumably to make up for the loss of the Mediterranean islands, but secretly this may have been an effort by him and his son to take a land route into Italy. 
Spain was also rich for its mining and other resources, and so it was valuable to pay for the Carthaginian war effort and the reparations to Rome. After securing Spain, Hannibal left north. The plan to cross the Alps mountains through Gaul and into Italy was a kind of plan that is so crazy that it just works. The Alps crossing was certainly no cakewalk, especially with all the elephants, but the Gauls that he found were more than willing to help him and evade the Romans. The Carthaginian army swelled and would, for the rest of the war, never be low on men. In 218 BC, he made his way into Italy and began what could only be described as some of the most brilliant series of battles ever fought in the history of the world. At Trevia, he surprised, outmaneuvered, and surrounded the very experienced Roman army, the Roman army that had fought in the First Punic War. At Lake Trasimene, he outmaneuvered the Romans once again. He ambushed and attacked the Romans from the rear. Only a few thousand Romans could escape the bloody battle, with large parts of the army being chased into the lake, drowning or being killed in their attempt to flee. The final confrontation took place near Cannae. The Carthaginians aimed to take the depot of munitions and supplies from the Romans, and set themselves up there to fight them. The Roman army was supersized, and both consuls of the year oversaw the battle. Hannibal predicted the Roman strategy. He purposefully weakened his center, expecting the Romans to punch there. The Romans were hoping to get a quick defeat in the Carthaginians, breaking their lines in the center and causing the army to break up and flee. However, instead they pushed forward and forward, with the Carthaginians giving up the space. Eventually they pushed so far that the Carthaginians were able to surround them. It became a massacre. One of the consuls died in the battle, and the other prematurely fled. It was the most devastating disaster the Romans had ever faced. 70,000 men and the large amount of senior magistrates died in the slaughter. Hannibal remained in Italy for 14 years. He was a constant threat, but could never find the strength to take Rome itself. He only needed a bit more strength, a bit more money, and Rome would have been destroyed. Rome may have fallen, except they started to have overwhelming success on the islands. Carthage attempted to retake the Mediterranean islands, but the Romans pushed them back, every time. In 211, a certain Publius Cornelius Scipio was sent to Spain on what could be more or less a suicide mission. The 24-year-old managed to actually win great battles in the region. Technically, at 24, Scipio would have been far too young to take this posting, but given the extreme circumstances and the fact that lots of the magistrates were dead in the fields of Cannae, an exception was allowed for him. His infectious personality and individual skill allowed him to take high offices and roles long before he should have, setting a precedent for the strong men who would eventually destroy the Republic. It was in 209 BC that Scipio had massive successes in Spain, and in the same year much success was found in Sicily. The final piece of the puzzle was Greece. Roman Carthage had been jockeying for support from the east. Support for Hannibal from Greece could be the push needed to end Rome at its core. Rome had armies in the Balkans fighting for dominance over the region. Rome, therefore, going into 207 BC, was thinly extended and had armies and generals all over the Mediterranean. What's incredible is that they'd win. Everywhere. By 206 BC, Spain fell to Scipio. Scipio was then elected consul of all things and set out for an invasion of North Africa. He did this, by the way, with no official army. He raised personal allegiance and was only able to do this due to his personal gravitas. He set out with some 35,000 men, and Hannibal was recalled to meet the threat close to the Carthaginian capital. The Battle of Zama, as it would be known to history, was a decisive Roman victory. Carthage would never truly recover, and would soon fall completely to the Romans. It's a surprise that this was the case. After 14 years in Italy, Hannibal's troops would have been the single most capable army in the world. In fact, they were likely one of the best armies the world had ever seen. 
rivaled probably by only Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar's armies in antiquity. Hannibal's army was a product of his personal success and accomplishment and 14 years of campaigning. It was, however, not enough to beat the infectious charisma of Scipio Africanus, as he would now be known because of his African conquest. In the peace that followed, Rome gained Spain, in addition to large sums of money. Cleaning up now, Rome focused their attention on Macedonia. After several long campaigns, in 196, Greece itself was under the control of the Romans. Not long after, the Romans advanced to Syria. We find ourselves now, in 189 BC, only 70 years after the start of the First Punic War, in a lifetime, the Romans added Sicily, Spain, North Africa, effectively, the Balkans, effectively, Greece, effectively, and Syria, effectively, to their empire. Carthage, in the result of the peace agreements, was effectively neutered, and had next to no chance of getting any prominent power. They were at the top of the world, and from there, they could only go down. I would like to conclude this episode with a reading of a few lines from a poem. The poem, called the Conquestio Sulpiciae, was likely written in and around 96 AD. It was the catalyst for the creation of this podcast, and in the poem, the author describes the Roman expansion and collapse. She described Rome as, egged on at home by the wars in Latium, leapt over to the waves of Sicily and the citadel of Carthage, and carried away the other empires and the whole world at the same time. This is the essence of the High Republic, and is the main takeaway from the period. Rome had expanded rapidly unfathomably so, only comparable maybe to Alexander the Great himself. Next time on the 9680 podcast, I'll cover the history of Rome up to the death of the Republic and the death of Julius Caesar. That episode will be released in two weeks. The episode after that, which will come out in a month, will be about the Julio-Claudian dynasty, from Caesar's death in 44 BC to Nero's in 68 AD. That episode will bring us to starting the Flavians and the main course of this podcast. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.